0: Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan Stewart. Before we get to today's episode, we're pausing to remember chef, cookbook author, and radical culinary storyteller, Anthony Bourdain, who died late last week from suicide. For thousands and thousands of people worldwide, myself included, Anthony Bourdain was an inspiring force in the food world, helping redefine what it meant to be a food writer, a cookbook author, and at the heart of it all, a storyteller. Anthony Bourdain wrote a couple cookbooks, his first, The Laisal Cookbook, which is a great volume, and Appetites, which was focused on home cooking. He was also a wonderful megaphone for people to tell their stories, which we all saw so clearly as he introduced the world to people, countries, and customs through food on his TV shows. But he took the same approach with cookbooks, helping publish and elevate many critical voices, from Roy Choi's cookbook to our recent guest James Siobut of Hawker Fair, a book Anthony was very intimately involved in, and today's guest, Edward Lee, who wrote this of him for CNN. I will remember him as a kind man who wanted to help bring others into the light. A young chef, a struggling business, a food hawker, a musician, an activist, even a homeless person. Tony's broad vision of humanity included them all. His influence was and is staggering. If you or anyone you know is considering suicide or self-harm, or is anxious, depressed or just need to talk, know that you're not alone. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the Crisis Line at 741-741. From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine.
1: I cannot eat a dish without wondering who cooked it and what her story is. For me, the discovery of a great dish is not the pinnacle. It is just the beginning.
0: Now we're talking today with Chef Edward Lee. We sat down with Edward before Anthony Bourdain's death. But for those of you who know Bourdain's work, I think you'll see poignantly in our conversation how much he influenced Edward. Edward. Edward is the author behind the cookbook Smoke and Pickles and a new work, Buttermilk Graffiti, which truthfully bridges the gap between cookbooks and narrative journalism. In the book, Edward road trips across the United States to uncover the stories of what he calls America's new melting pot cuisine. It was a no-brainer to have Edward Leon. He's just as obsessed with the stories behind food as we are. From beignets in New Orleans to recreating the flavors of Cambodia, Edward doesn't just explore the roots of these foods, but the people and their unique impact, and he brings us 40 new recipes based on their stories in this book. Now, you might know Edward from his restaurants in Louisville, Kentucky, or Washington, D.C., or from his role as host of the third season of Mind of a Chef. I couldn't think of a more ringing endorsement for the book than that of the late Anthony Bourdain, who Edward grew close to working together on Mind of a Chef and other projects bourdain's quote is etched here on the cover of the book where he says this book shines a light on what it means to cook and eat american food in all its infinitely nuanced and ever-evolving glory we sat down with edward at san francisco's the civic kitchen to talk cookbooks hi edward thanks so much for joining us on salt and Spine today (laughs) thank you for having me we really appreciate it and your latest work is buttermilk graffiti Mm -hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're accomplishing in this book
1: Mm, so it, it's it's uh, it's a little bit hard to explain, um, but it's kind of a travelogue of cuisines around America that I thought just deserved some more attention, some more love. But it's not it's it's not journalism. But there's there's a little bit of memoir in there. There's some recipes, but it's not really a cookbook. Uh, so it's a little bit of everything.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a really interesting hybrid of, in some senses, it's it feels journalistic. You say mm-hmm. it's not journalism per se. Mm-hmm. In some senses, it feels like a cookbook. It has, you know, 40 original mm-hmm. recipes that you developed. Um, and it also has a lot of narrative, which mm-hmm. I think is something you really want in a great cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually debated a little bit internally about whether we should classify this as a cookbook. And I find it so interesting that you don't consider it a cookbook considering, you know, you put time and energy into developing 40 recipes around these really compelling stories of folks you met all across the country. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. You're right, and I, it's it, it is a at the end of the day, it, it was a very personal journey for me to meet people to discover new cuisines, to travel. And through that, um, the recipes came out of that. The, uh, the short answer is I get a lot of, I, I think all chefs get the question all the time, how did you come up with this recipe? And I always answer with, well, do you want the short answer or the long answer? <laughs> um, right. And the short answer is, well, you know, I had these ingredients laying around and I've always wanted to, put some of these ingredients together. Um, and I think this book is kind of a response to, well, this is the long answer. Um, if you want to know how truly a recipe comes to fruition, um, sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes experiences and memories and things that have absolutely nothing to do with food, like hanging out with someone that... that isn't a chef and uh seeing art and you know feeling the sun on your cheeks and in some weird place that you've never been before um and and all that is sort of sort of went into writing this book
0: Right. And it, certainly it's very different in many ways from what we would consider a traditional cookbook, like your first book, Smoke and Pickles. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's smaller. It, it holds like a, a book you'd read on the train or something mm-hmm. and not a cookbook. It's a lot more narrative. But what prompted you to take that format then? Is it that desire to go a little bit deeper than a, a traditional cookbook does?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, so so the seed of this book came about actually when I was on book tour for Smoke and Pickles. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you, you travel to all these cities back to back to back and you see sort of the landscape of america unfolding as you are traveling from city after city after city um and you're also eating a lot because that's what i do you know like many people do i will go to a new city i will find the new hip hot trendy you know michelin star restaurant to eat at Uh, and then the next day i'll I'll look for something that's really sort of hidden out of the way and and you know like a mom and pop store and something that's usually in, in a neighborhood that's a little bit challenging, right? Because I think that's fun. And as I was doing that, I was like, you know, we we, we write so much um, and we write with so much reverence about the chef at the, you know, trendy restaurant. We rarely ever write about that Vietnamese place that sells that incredible pho. And and if we do, it's usually a very short kind of thing and it's usually about the dish or how cheap it is or how um you may have to wait online but it's a really good price Uh, but we never really speak about the people and we don't give them the same reverence and so i thought what would happen if um instead of just going there and writing about uh, that delicious bowl of ten dollar soup that you would actually go and try and find the stories behind the people that are making that food um and that was the original sort of Idea for it, and kind of developed into something new, but that—that's the. I, I think there's still that idea is preserved in the book. I hope.
0: Yeah, I think so. It's and it's an amazing idea, and I think a, a much needed one to give attention to these stories. Uh, it's sixteen chapters. You go to sixteen different places, tell these really compelling stories. Some of which are in you know culinary hotbeds, like you mm-hmm. open in New Orleans, mm-hmm. which obviously is a great food city mm-hmm. in, in a number of ways. But then you also go to places like Lowell, Massachusetts, places that aren't like on a, an eater hot list mm-hmm. map, right? <laughs> so how do you find um, a lot of these stories and identify the people you wanted
1: to talk to and write? about it it was difficult um there were about uh, of the 16 chapters there's probably really only four that i really knew i wanted to go to and lol was one of them um and and everything else sort of developed um organically as i took each trip as i uh, you know the interesting was every time i told someone about the project i was doing every single person would say oh you gotta go here in my hometown, there's these people doing this thing. Or, man, if you go to Nashville, there's and it just kind of affirmed what I believed, which is these things are percolating everywhere. And, and yeah. we kind of all know about them, but no one really talks about them. But, but you know, like in my hometown Louisville, like, oh, there's these incredible Cuban immigrants everywhere. And there's a, actually a pretty thriving Cuban um, culture, you know, in Louisville, Kentucky. And they don't really write about it, but, but we all know it's there. And so, as I was going through the process of writing the first few chapters, I would talk to people, and, and they would all give me like ten recommendations. And so I would kind of follow—you know—it was like being a, 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 I guess it's journalism. You know Like yeah. I would follow these leads, and, right. and if something felt good, I would go on my next trip. Sure. Were there places you had to leave out and stories? Yeah, you had to no, leave out? there were there were actually a number. Of just, just I ran out of time yeah. and, and brain energy and <laughs> sure. gut, I just, it was it was exhausting to write you know i'm i precursored this with you know i have a daytime job and i'm a chef so <laughs> right. a lot of this was written in the wee hours of the night when when my kid was asleep and the emails weren't flooding in so i just it was exhausting and and so i just had to i mean i could have gone to 30 chapters easily. But I had yeah. to stop it there. But there were there were some uh, um, that really would have loved to have had more time and, and, and energy and space. Was there a
0: particular one of the 16 chapters or stories that really surprised you or that really just stuck out to you as a wow story? Yeah, well,
1: so... Um well, I'll tell you the, the one, um, uh, the, the Cambodian, um, neighborhood in, in Lowell, Massachusetts. that was okay. actually the first chapter I wrote. And, and okay. at the time, um, I actually went up. This was before we even had a book deal. Um. And I just wanted to write about or just experience and, and write about because I'd heard that there was this huge it's actually the largest Cambodian population outside of Cambodia, and I was like in Lowell, Massachusetts, how weird is that So I went up there and I thought yeah let let's write an article about this, and it'd be cool and maybe it'll get published in a magazine somewhere and um I went there and i and I wrote and I, and I sort of embedded myself in the community, and I kind of just stayed there for a couple of days and met sam and and spent time with him and and it's incredible right his food is incredible and his restaurant's beautiful um and then i'm driving through lowell and i pass by uh romalo's west end gym and i go wait a second and it just kind of hit me because i i if your viewers have ever seen the movie the fighter it's a great movie Uh it's with the uh mark Wahlberg and christian bale and and it just hit me because i knew that But because my, my head was wrapped around this Cambodian thing, it just didn't make the connection. And so I was like, wait a second. I got to go in here because I love boxing. Um, so I went in, kind of hung out at the gym, was hanging out with some of the guys. And and they said, well, you got to go, you got to go talk to, to Irish Jack Brady. And he's, he owns a bar called the Gaelic Bar. And I was like, wow, where do I find him? So I ended up going to his bar and and they said, well, he's not here. You got to come back. He might be here later tonight. So anyway, I go, I go to the restaurant. Come back later that night and I end up staying up with him drinking till about two in the morning. And he's just telling me story after story after story about growing up in Lowell and his childhood and being Irish in Lowell. And there's black and white posters all over the, the, the walls. And it just hit me in this, in this sort of little drunken haze at two in the morning. That's when I came up with the idea for the book that it wasn't, I wasn't going to write about just the Cambodian chef. But I had to write it within the context of the town and the aging Irish boxer mm. and how one group is fading as another one emerges. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that was America. You know, and of course, I called my publisher in some drunken... I said, this is it. This is... We're going to write about an Irish boxer. And she's like, so you want to write a cookbook about an Irish boxer? <laughs> um, so, it was, it was a little bit strange. But, you know to me it made sense right because it was that connection the Irish boxer and the Cambodian chef don't know each other they have no idea the, that each other exists and yet they're they're a block away from each other right but they are connected yeah in, in in ways that are really deeper than than each of them may even understand in their own sort of existence and and I see it as clear as they they maybe don't uh, um, but they are Lowell, Massachusetts, and and Lowell, Massachusetts is is a microcosm of America to me. And so, when I see that, I get really excited. And it's kind of like the title of the book, right? Buttermilk exists in one plane, and graffiti exists on another. The two don't go together. There's nothing about it that should fit. But they do, if, if you weave the story around it. And this middle-aged Cambodian chef and this Irish boxer, to me, are forever entwined with each other. They don't know it. It, you mentioned the title,
0: Buttermelt Graffiti, and then the subtitle is A Chef's Journey to Discover America's New Melting Pot Cuisine. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of touched on this, but how much of this book is about telling the story of what America is and what American cuisine is in a way that often isn't told?
1: yeah yeah it's it's you know and again it's this isn't to like um bash any like <laughs> <laughs> mainstream media, sure. uh but yeah, I don't see those stories being told, yeah you know, and if if those stories are being told, they're very pat, they're very quick, I can't tell you how many times. That I've talked to these people on this journey and, and I, there was at least three times where I was like literally weeping, listening to people's stories. And, uh, listen, I love my chef friends, but I don't weep when I hear their stories. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 there's a difference. Some of the people have incredible stories. And, and what I love about it is that, that I would not have known them or met them or listened to their story if it wasn't the gateway of food that brought me to them. Um, and, and, and I really believe that food has this power. It, it's, it's, it's a power to open up doors to open up adventures to to meet people like you can you can sort of follow the the breadcrumbs of food and it will take you on these adventures you know and i tell people like yeah i'm i'm going away for a week to Lowell. and they're like why <laughs> i'm going to you know jamaica and i'm like <laughs> yeah but it's a different thing yeah but but in some ways i had i had a real experience that was very personal and very awakening and, and just really just incredible being there and and you know at, listen at the end of the day i guess the book is about my own personal journey and and, and what it means to me and why why i did this and, and, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's made me a different person. You know, these aren't celebrity chefs, so they don't really care to be in a book. And so it was really hard to, to get people to open up and talk to me. And one of the, the tricks that I found was that I would start to tell them my story first, um, because I'm also the child of an immigrant, and I also grew up struggling in a, in a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn, and so I kind of sympathize a little bit with some, what some of these people have, even though vastly different cultures But I would, I would kind of like say, Oh, you know, you know, like, like if, if someone had a rough childhood or if their, their parents had a tough time and say, you know, my parents had, had a rough time too. And they came over here and, uh, you know, they worked in a factory job for, for 80 hours a week. And, and so on and on, I would find myself. Telling my own story in order to to get someone else's story. In today's political climate, Mm -hmm. too, this book
0: couldn't be more appropriately Mm -hmm. timed about telling these important stories about what America is today Mm -hmm. and what American cuisine is today. Mm -hmm. Was that a factor for you? Did you think about it? No, the it was, you climate? know, so the
1: funny thing was, you know, let's bring out the T word. Like, this was, this was, I mean, I started the, the research and and the, the writing of this book before Trump was ever even a, a nominee. You know what I mean? Like, this was two years ago. But one thing I, I you know, we ha- obviously, I was writing the book through the whole thing and, 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 i I didn't want it to be a political book Mm -hmm. i I didn't want to be this is and the original concept of the book was not about that so i I never wanted to shift gears midway and say okay all of a sudden this is going to be a a statement about you know immigrants and um yeah and it's weird i mean except for the introduction i used the word immigrant very little in the book um i feel like it's a highly charged word and i Sometimes I don't even know what it means. I mean, we're, we're all from somewhere else. Right. And, and and I think that word right now especially has such a highly charged uh, connotation to it. But no, I, I really wanted to stay away from that. I really wanted to tell um, personal human stories. And, and I think when you do that, it muddies the waters a little bit if you then jump to the connection of, oh, and this is the political climate or something that we live in, so. Another
0: editorial decision you made is not to include photos. Yes. Um, which, you know, perhaps sort of works in your favor of saying this is not a modern cookbook at mm-hmm. least by modern sort of cookbook mm-hmm. standards how did you reach that decision
1: it's um that was the one thing that we went back and forth with my publisher about um and at the end of the day i two, there, there's a lot of reasons but um one i wanted people to really live with the stories and i feel like if you insert pictures in there you know they're just going to skip right to the pictures and i want you know, I, I, I love reading. I'm a I'm a I'm a lover of all fiction and nonfiction. And I love that when you read something, you get it you you paint that picture in your head first. Whether it's a dish or a person or a, a landscape, you you your imagination makes that picture happen. And you've seen this, right? Yeah. Everyone's read the book and gone to the movie and you're like, Oh, that's not as good as the, right. the book. Right. Um and so I just want I want people to read it. Um there are some pictures that I put on my website in case someone does. Um but one of the things, a couple of times, um, or actually more than a couple of times, quite quite often, um, someone would email me um, from my first cookbook, mm-hmm. and they would send me a picture, and they'd say, hey, this is the brisket I made from your cookbook. Sorry, it doesn't look like what's in the book. Interesting. And it kind of, uh, it failed. Huh. And I'd say... Well, do you like it? They were like, No, it tasted great and everyone loved it and we had time. And I said, Well, why isn't it a, why is it a failure? And so, well, it doesn't look like as pretty as what's in, in your book. And I hated that. That always really, really upset me. Yeah. Because the purpose of this it's for the, the reader to, to make food, to enjoy, to really get something out of it. And the fact that you would do that, take all that effort and take all the joy from cooking and then think somehow that it failed at the end just always killed me. And I, was, I would always say, listen, man, like I had a, a food stylist and I had three guys in the kitchen. and I had a, This is fake, you know, like what you're doing is real. If your people are happy and it tastes good, that's success what do you need what do you need a picture for you right. know and and now, granted the, the recipes in this book are not like restaurant recipes where you need tweezers and all that stuff they're, they're very much um, coming from home kitchens and I want to bring them to other home kitchens and also I tell people like listen aside from about 50, 60 years ago we've been living with cookbooks without pictures for hundreds if not thousands of years um, it's actually a very recent development that we had and, and actually some of my favorite cookbooks that I go back to again again are, are books without pictures
0: we'll be right back with more of our conversation with edward lee we're talking today about his latest book buttermilk graffiti a chef's journey to discover america's new melting pot cuisine as a boy growing up in brooklyn a korean-american and a son of immigrant parents edward has always been surrounded by a patchwork of cultural and culinary influences Uh, He talks about how he's always been drawn to exploring cultures, uh, and he's done that in book form, through his restaurants, uh, and through Mind of a Chef. This book is a really fascinating deep dive by a curious chef uh, into the untold stories around the country. Like the best culinary storytelling, Edward brings us into people's lives. He sits around and breaks bread and learns from a place of curiosity and passion. For American listeners, Edward is introducing us to our neighbors. One of my favorites is the chapter, A Lesson in Smen. Now here, uh, Edward learns how to make smen, which he notes is the long fermented butter, technically illegal to sell commercially in the United States, from a mall. Uh, who is an immigrant from Marrakesh, living in New Haven, Connecticut. Without giving away too much of the book, uh, Edward learns the smen-making process from a mall, which includes washing the butter with thyme water. In return, he introduces her to what he calls one of America's greatest national treasures. And you'll just have to read to see what he means. Uh, As with each chapter, Edward includes an inspired recipe this time, it's a bourbon-washed butter, uh, which he pairs with baked clams and saffron. Before we jump back in, I do want to remind you that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school offering hands-on classes and events for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. We love having Salt and Spine guests record in front of the Civic Kitchen's expertly curated cookbook library, and you would love taking a class there. It's a bright, open, welcoming space with engaging teachers who focus on a range of techniques and cuisines. Now, check out some of their upcoming classes. I've got my eyes on Summer Entertaining, which is packed with tips and recipes you can use to entertain year-round. You'll make recipes like a melon and prosciutto salad or cherry tomato leek and blue cheese galette. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. So, when you developed these 40 recipes, how did you approach that? Obviously, you weren't just taking what the folks you profiled and interviewed were making and translating that. You you put a spin on things. You mm-hmm. sort of adapted them and made, you know, green tea, matcha, beignets, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. coming from the
1: the stories in New Orleans. Yeah. It was very interesting. So every chapter is very different. Like yeah. some people wouldn't give me their recipes. Um, so I'd have to sort of taste it and, and try and get it out of them. Sure. Some people, like the, the, the really lovely Moroccan lady that I met in Connecticut, she gave me a recipe. She was like, here, take your yeah. recipes. So where, where it was applicable, I would literally just transcribe them, but give them credit. And then other places I would kind of riff on that. And, you know, again, I, I never used the word cultural or, you know, culinary appropriation. Um, but it's one of those hot topics now, right? Mm. And, mm-hmm. and so, for me, this was like, hey, I, I personally don't believe any one person or any one group owns a culture's food. I personally truly, truly believe that we can cook anyone's food. We, we, no one gets to own food. We cook whatever we want. Now, hopefully, you come at it from a place of respect and a place of 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 homage, but you don't get to tell anyone else that they can't cook your food. I mean, that's I, I. And and as a chef, let's be honest. All I do is go around and steal my friend's recipes. That's all I do is go into their kitchen and go, what's that? Oh, that's good. I'm going to steal that. Um, that's our profession. Yeah. Um, so, so this idea of that, that someone's appropriating someone else's food, um, and I understand the sensitivity and where it's coming from, but at the end of the day, this is how food progresses and this is how... If we are only allowed to cook the food of our own heritage, the, the culinary landscape would be a pretty dull place. Yeah. Um, and so... For me, I wanted to say, like, listen, this is, of course, man, I'm going to go cook Nigerian food. If I go and spend a week in, in a neighborhood and, and spend time with Nigerians and their food, it, it's impossible for me not to get influenced by that. Um, and something's going to come out of it. Maybe not traditional nigerian food but i'm gonna pull some techniques or something and and create this this hybrid and you address that issue sort of head-on right Mm -hmm. in the beginning of the book you talk about
0: the term authenticity and how polarizing that term is Mm -hmm. now and how um you have other terms like Mm -hmm. tradition Mm -hmm. um, that you like to talk about folks approaching food from tradition instead Mm -hmm. of using the term authenticity to describe something but that aspect of like bringing your chef's brain to these stories um is really interesting and i i think we saw that um with the moroccan woman and mm-hmm. learning how to make men and mm-hmm. she talked about it's time right mm-hmm. that that's the mm-hmm. traditional yeah. herb that's used in smen, yeah. and you started to then think about well how could we you know basil i think how could you incorporate mm-hmm. basil into mm-hmm. this or other sort of elements and flavors and yeah. i think that was really interesting to sort of have and, your personal perspective and, and see and that part that of it is
1: you know and and this speaks to a larger question um and I don't have an answer. I don't I don't have I don't come to a conclusion with this and I don't know and maybe some of your listeners will have an opinion on it but like does being American mean that you don't have an identity and and so you can assume anyone else's identity, right? For for her, she's so Moroccan that she couldn't think of any other spice or herb to use but thyme. This is how it's done. There's no other way. And and yet for me because I'm not Moroccan, but also because I'm not truly Korean or because I'm not truly anything, I can go, yeah, but what if you did this? And what if you did that? Which makes me very free to do anything that I want. But at the same time, I felt myself being jealous of her. Hmm. Being jealous of, of, of her confidence and her assurance that she doesn't even have the curiosity to try anything else because this is in her soul in her bones in her identity she knows this is the only way to make it and how could you even be tempted to do anything else and and sometimes i wish i had that much of an identity right to say that well that's it that's all i can do And, and and but i guarantee if she you know gets married and has a kid, her kid will probably go, no, Ma, I'm going to make this with gummy bears, you know, and, or whatever. Like, and, and is that what being an American means is that you sort of let go of those cultural identities and you just become freeform? You talk in the
0: beginning of the book about cookbooks and the role that they play in sort of um, capturing our, our living traditions, reflecting back for future generations on who we were in that point in time. How do you think this book fits into that sort of broader world of documenting what American cuisine is today?
1: Mm-hmm. I don't know. I That's a hard one to answer. Or <laughs> well, um, have
0: you seen cookbooks too? I mean, obviously, you you wrote smoke and yeah. smoke and pickles. Now you've written this book yeah. that brings in a lot of other stories. Mm-hmm. Have you seen a continual shift as a cookbook author mm-hmm. towards doing more of that to tell the story of American cooking that isn't? This is Southern food. This is what you eat if you're from the Midwest. This is you yes. know coastal
1: foods, etc. Def- definitely, and 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 what I think it's what I hope we're doing. Um, is that we're putting things into more context. And I'm hoping that, that, that's what this book and, and I I see a lot of, uh, uh, books do now, which is going, let's just delve a little bit. Let's just scratch the surface a little bit deeper. Let's go down the rabbit hole a little bit more and kind of flesh these things out. And I think that's also when it becomes really interesting, you know. And so we just, we start to parcel these things out and put them in their, their, their context and yeah. realize like, wait, well, there's a lot to, to learn there. Um, you know, I, I tell the stories of the, the, the Nigerian chapter that I wrote and I was spent time speaking to these Nigerians. And again, I, I hope the reader goes on the journey with me because a lot of these cuisines, I was new to them too, right? So I'm yeah. sitting here trying to learn about Nigerian food and, and I'm asking all these questions and I think I'm really getting to something. And, and finally he's, he's like, what are you talking about, Nigeria? What is Nigeria? And I'm like, I don't know. It's your country. It's like, there's no such thing as Nigeria. It's you created Nigeria. We didn't. Like, Nigeria is, is 400 tribes and 200 languages. And we have no idea what you're talking about. Like, this is the, 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 the idea of a, of a border that encompasses this neat place of culture that is called Nigeria. It's like, there's no such thing. The food of, of West Africa is so diverse, and it can change within a ten mile village of, from each other. And of course, then my mind is blown, and I can't <laughs> even think. I have to lay down because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, so yeah. I don't even know what I'm doing now. And so, so those things, though, though, for some people, maybe it's a headache, but for me, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating to go like, yeah, hey, you're right. I don't know anything. I mean, I've, and and. and but that's not a reason to stop learning. You know, I, I think it's actually more reason to go. I'm like, wow, this is so curious. Like probably, and yes, there are people who write, spend entire books just on that question of Nigerian yeah.
0: food yeah it's fascinating to see the the attention on a global scale in that way and also within the United States we yeah. had books like deep run roots mm-hmm. and victuals that like really focused on a type of southern cooking that's mm-hmm. very specific that's very to specific, a specific yeah. region a specific and area fascinating because
1: because yeah. when you get that specific um, you kind of take away some of the fluff and then it starts to really talk about narrative, right? So, why is fried chicken different in, in, in the Appalachia versus the Deep South? Right. I don't know. It's a very subtle difference, but if you really want to get the answer of why… Then you got to start talking about narrative and history and people. And that to me is the crux of all food is, is listen, food is made by people. It's not, doesn't come out of the earth or, you know, nature. It's, it's made by people. And so these are human stories because food is a very, very human and a very personal thing.
0: Were there cookbooks or other works that really inspired you or that you turned to while you were putting this together?
1: Yeah, there were. I mean, um, I always, I always go back to Jim Harrison because I, I think he's one of the most brilliant, um, just true writers but um, the way he approached his food writing w- what I loved about him is that you know he was he was just generally funny um, but he could also tackle big topics but mm-hmm. also do them in a way that was um, you know didn't feel heavy handed and, and I, I really one of the things that I didn't want because some of the things that I address in this book are pretty heavy and I didn't want the book to sound preacherly or heavy handed Um, so I I read him a lot but I also read just like poetry you know I'm not a professional writer most of my day is spent around food not around words so I almost needed like you know before you run a marathon you stretch and you exercise and and so like before I would sit down to write um, I would read poetry um, just to get my head in the space of like focusing on words what else can we expect from you in the future i don't know but i am excited we, we just started a, a a non-profit um to empower young young women in the restaurant business in okay. kentucky yeah um so i'm really excited about that all the young chefs that we picked are now um doing their mentorships and so they're going around the country working with um very accomplished uh female chefs from all over the country so Great. it's really fun it's it's and it's a cool thing that that i'm seeing happen right now and um i think uh something cool will come out of that in the years to come that's great well since you don't know i've
0: got an idea for you okay i want to see buttermilk graffiti as a netflix series i want to see mind of a chef with these 16 episodes these 16 people
1: that'd be if anyone else is out there (laughs) listening that would be a cool idea
0: they're such powerful (laughs) stories uh well thank you so much edward thank Thank you for bringing these stories to us thank you for joining us today on salt and spine we really appreciate it thank you i appreciate it thanks for having me and that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, to hear Edward reading an excerpt from Buttermelt Graffiti and for exclusive recipes. And you can enter to win a copy of Buttermelt Graffiti in our weekly giveaway. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and we hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team. Our original theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.